The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us today. Sometimes I get a little bit geeky on this show, and I cover topics that uh, until you listen to the show, you're like, why does she care so much about it? But today we are covering a topic that I've wanted to cover for about two years and just couldn't find the right guests to help us bring it home to why this situation matters to every man, woman, and child. Um, and I'm so thrilled today to have guests who can help us understand how critical it is that we understand the flow of rare earth minerals and metals, where they come from, what they're used for, what some of the geopolitical issues are around them, and why it's so important, especially for those of us who are living in North America, to consider where we get those rare earth minerals and metals and what we do with them. And and it's just a fascinating topic that's going to matter so much, I believe, to the 21st century economy. Um, We have two guests today, Ron McDonald, who's a former member of the Canadian Parliament, and he's now the executive chairman of Critical Elements Corporation. And we have Jean-Sebastien Lavallee, president and CEO of the same Critical Elements Corporation. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Ron and Jean. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, pleasure. It's so nice to have you on the show. I'd like to begin the discussion about rare earth materials um, by making this topic relevant to all of our listeners, because I know that there will be people out there saying, why in the world is she so excited about this topic? Why does it matter to me? Um, So I'd really like for you to kind of bring it home to everyday people, help uh, all of us understand why these materials are already vital in our daily lives. We'll talk about the future of these materials, but what are they already being used? used for in devices or um, mechanisms that we're familiar with in our day-to-day lives? Almost every single thing that we use in, in our modern lives has some, uh, some connection to rare earths or critical elements. And, and I think today we'll, I'd like to broaden it from rare earths to critical because right. rare earths initially started off because of a, a major problem of supply supply chain interruption from China, and then quickly governments, when they started to look, they said, well, there's rare earths and there's other elements as well that are just as important and just as critical. So rare earth and critical elements. So it's in everything. Uh, anybody that is uh, looking, listening to the show on a laptop, you cannot have a laptop unless you have rare earths and some of those critical elements in it. Um, even right down to light bulbs, uh, artificial hips, artificial joints. Uh, water purification systems, your catalytic converter in your car. Uh, so, so when you start looking at the application of those rare earths and critical elements in everyday life, you quickly come to the conclusion, A, that, wow, we're really dependent on a robust and uninterruptible supply of these critical elements, and B, without it, most of the things that we take for granted in our modern uh, age are not going to be available to us. 
Right. And I know that there are several medical devices. Uh, is it true that like hearing aids, pacemakers, some of these really critical medical devices that so many of us are familiar with also um, rely upon these critical elements? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and some of them only rely on a very small amount to make them functional. But if, if that's what you need to make it functional, even if it's only a few grams, then if you don't have it, it means that you're not going to get those products that are required. Medical devices is really, really interesting. Um, uh, if you look, for example, over on uh, tantalum, and tantalum is, is not a rare earth, but it certainly is a critical element. And in tantalum, uh, when I first got involved, knew it was really important. You can't ha- cannot have a smartphone. You cannot have a smartphone with a little bit of tantalum and tantalum capacitors, and you can't have, uh, you can't have a laptop. Simple as that. Uh, And so when we first got involved in it, we started to say, you know, these things are really critical. When we started to do the research about four years ago, when I really started to get into rare earths and critical elements, uh, found out that the much broader use for tantalum, they're in some fluorescent bulbs that are sitting in your house, tiny little amounts, didn't even know it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But what really kind of brought it home to me uh, was the fact that uh, the hip replacements, when you get a hip replacement, some of the hip replacements that are used are tantalum coated. So, so it's pretty clear that we've become very dependent without our knowledge. We've almost become addicted to a steady supply of high-quality rare earths and critical elements to advance our, our, our society and to have the quality of life that we've got today. Jean, I think I heard you uh, yes, come in uh, there. I would just like to add that uh, lithium is also used, uh, lithium is a critical metal, but uh, lithium is also used in a lot of pills uh, for uh, depression and some medical uh, problems. Really? Now that is something that I didn't know. I had no idea that that was a part of uh, that genre of pharmaceuticals. Very yep. interesting. Very interesting. Talk about the role that these critical elements and rare earth minerals play in future energy needs and the environmental impact of using these materials to create alternatives to some of the older forms of energy generation. In other words, uh, renewable energy generation, how uh, how will that be reliant upon these critical elements? And then I also would like for you to talk about, in, in complement to that energy generation, um, large-scale battery storage and how dependent that whole concept and that uh, grouping of technologies is on critical elements. Well, I think, you know, only people that are still hiding behind rocks uh, – uh, wouldn't believe that we need to reduce our CO2 emissions. We need to reduce our carbon footprint. Uh, we need to get into sustainable energy um, because if we don't, quite simply put, uh, the planet doesn't have a very long future. So, so the reality is is that we have to break our dependence on a lot of fossil fuels uh, that have allowed us to develop the last industrial revolution, and we've got to move over to the new industrial revolution. And the new industrial revolution is going to take place around renewables. And, you know, a lot of people maybe will yawn because they've heard before that we're just on the cusp of a renewable energy future, sustainability on, on power generation, and, and, uh, and also on the reduction of use of electricity, making, uh, making our, pow- our, our, our power use more efficient. But mm-hmm. the fact is, is that over the last number of years, advances have been made in solar uh, production as well as wind production using rare earth metals and critical metals. Uh, to the point that right now, you know, a, a properly installed solar field in the right place is a good economic investment, and it also reduces our CO2 emissions and our, and our, uh, and, and our carbon footprint. 
uh, wind turbines because of advances in technology using uh, permanent magnets which use rare, uses rare earths have made it uh, uh, wind, tur- uh, wind generation almost economic. The missing, the holy grail to all of this to take renewables and put them on an economic footing has been affordable, reliable storage. And the affordable, reliable storage technological transformation is happening as we speak. Uh, we've got major advances in using things like lithium-ion batteries, uh, vanadium flow batteries, nickel hydride batteries, and other uh, types of technology uh, that are allowing for, for maybe the first time in a long, well, the first time ever, actually, uh, those wind uh, technologies to be economic because we're now able to, by the use of things like lithium, lithium-ion, to take large amounts of power and store them quickly and discharge them quickly. So what it means is, is that we, we, we don't lose power at night. Most of the wind generation, power generated is at night when the grid really doesn't need it. So mm-hmm. you have to find a way to store it, to release it to the grid when it's required. And once you can get that done, the economics of wind-generated power become very positive and very robust. So, so there are the types of changes that, that we're seeing that are happening today. You're seeing solar installations, uh, massive ones in China. The Zhangbei project is a $2 billion test facility, and they're using lithium-ion batteries for storage as well as uh, vanadium flow batteries. But the majority of the battery storage in China is going to be lithium-ion batteries. Um, so, so the revolution has already started. The holy grail has been found, and it is storage. Well, and, you know, yesterday I was speaking with a high school class, a science class, about some of the big issues that I think that they will see in their lifetime. And and I was talking about this very issue. And I said, you know, you've probably been hearing since you were little kids that solar and wind were coming, (laughs) you know, that it's coming, it's coming, and it's starting to happen. But I said, what's really important for you to know is that it must happen because all of the energy sources that we've been relying upon for, uh, you know, as far back as your great-grandparents, you know, were were working in, in the industrial economy that we had, those resources are finite, and they will run out at some point. It may not be in your lifetime or even your great-grandchildren's lifetime, but at some point, we won't be able to bring more coal and oil and natural gas out of the ground. It just won't last forever. And at some point in human history, we've got to be able to harness infinite power sources um, because our energy consumption is not going down and we have that technology ready to get going now but the critical piece of making it um, flow as reliably as like coal power or some other you know types of very reliable um, 24-7 generation plants um, is, is battery storage being able to ensure that we can um store that energy, but also help it to flow across the transmission lines in a very reliable way. And they were very interested in in how uh, that was going to happen. And I told them, listen to Go Green Radio this week. We'll be talking to some experts about that. <laughs> so I think I think that's a very exciting field and, and something that we need to understand is, is absolutely critical to you know, the future of, of the standard of living we'd like to pass on to our children. Um, but again, it relies upon these natural resources of critical elements, and we need to talk about where they come from and how to manage those. Um, we already talked a little bit about how these materials would help us mitigate the human contributions to climate change. Jean, was there anything else that you wanted to add to that or the previous uh, question that I was asking Ron? For sure, the 
to to your question right now, uh, the, the the lithium uh, ion battery will help to m- mitigate all that uh, emission for sure. Uh, if you look at the electrification of the car, uh, all the storage battery uh, in China, you can see a big big plan of solar panel and wind turbine. All these things will mitigate for sure, and you. For that, you really won't have the lithium vanadium and all the rare earth to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. It's it's just. Do you see any other way of creating a sustainable future without a, a steady supply of these critical elements, Jean? No. <laughs> um, Ron, you know, activists and you know, environmental activists and politicians talk a lot about creating a sustainable future. Is there any other way? Oh, no, there isn't, unless we want to roll the clock back and we want to start living with, you know, oil lamps. It's not going to happen. And I think one of the critical things uh, that governments need to address, particularly in the United States, you know, in the U.S., we don't have a battery policy. So mm-hmm. while we're staring over the fiscal cliff in the U.S., uh, uh, other countries such as China, uh, such as Korea and uh, even Indonesia are building stockpiles of these critical elements because they've made the decision to go to a green future. They've made, they've put targets in place and they've achieved them. And I, I want to just speak for a minute. You know, a lot of people, uh, perhaps in America, think that, uh, that, that China is a bit of an enemy when it comes to some uh, areas of competitiveness and products. Well, the reality is, is that their government uh, has the luxury of not having to go to the polls every four or five years, so they do very long-range planning. The Chinese government, uh, they plan in five-year tranches. And what they've done is, uh, and, and we're now in the 12th five-year economic plan, in the 11th plan, first time ever, they set a target for renewable energy. They set it at 8%. They achieved nearly 9% in five years. But because they had committed to a target, and because they had policies to support that, they became the world's number one producer of solar panels and number one producer of wind turbines in the world. They drove the efficiency of solar panels up and the cost down, and the same thing for wind turbines. So yep. what we see now uh, if globally around the world is that solar makes sense if it's got a proper integration, proper battery management system, or a microgrid on it. They've committed themselves to build a green society in China, which is kind of weird because if you go to Beijing – on a sunny day, most days you can't see the sun. But they recognize that that is not sustainable and that they've got to move away from fossil fuels. They've got to do it based on a policy drive and everybody working in the same direction. Uh, and they're going to do it. They are going to build out battery storage to support their green energy production. They're going to build out, uh, they're going to build out 5% storage to total electrical generation capacity. Just to put that in the, in the that's why 2020. Put that in a number, it's about $600 billion in investment over mm-hmm. in storage. That's just on storage, about $600 billion of investment. And they are now scouring the world to make sure that those precious resources, rare earths and critical elements uh, like lithium and some of the other rare earths and vanadium and whatever else is there, and uh, you know, big flake graphite, they're making sure that they are going to have the supplies available for them to achieve those targets. In the United States, my fear is is that by the time uh, governments wake up in the United States and realize uh, that they, too, have got to be part of this new industrial revolution, that a lot of the material that's going to be required to support that is already going to be taken. 
Agreed. And and I've done a lot of work in China. And what you see in terms of their investment in these technologies is the result of two things. Very you know, strong GDP growth, 8 to 12% over yeah. the last few years. That's a luxury that we don't have in the United States. And no national debt. I mean, <laughs> so, you know, th- that's what you get when you've got a $16 trillion debt and uh, and you're up to your eyeballs in um, in, in debt coupled with practically stagnant GDP growth. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, much, much more with Ron and Jean on critical elements. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, our topic today is rare earth minerals and metals. We're going to get a little bit more specific thanks to the direction of our guests, and we're going to call them critical elements because um, what we're talking about is is um, natural resources that will help drive the industrial revolution of the 21st century away from energy sources that are finite, like coal, natural gas, and oil. We know that those those uh, fuels won't last forever. They'll last for a while, but not forever. And making a shift to energy sources that are infinite, wind, solar, etc. And the what we established in the last segment of the show is that in order to do that, it's absolutely critical that we have these critical elements like lithium, tantalum, and some others that we're talking about today. And right now, what's going on in North America, particularly in the U.S., is that 
um, we are tending to see uh, a seeding, if you will, of the markets for the green technology that uses these um, these critical elements like battery storage and massive solar development and wind development to China and places where the the public policymakers understand how important it is to have a steady and reliable supply of these critical elements. Again, if you're just joining us, our guests today um, are Ron McDonald, former member of the Canadian Parliament and the executive chairman of Critical Elements Corporation, and Jean-Sebastien Lavallee, the president and CEO of Critical Elements Corporation. Okay, given what we have established, that we've in order to have a sustainable future and infinite energy supplies we need these critical elements how do you expect global demand for rare earth minerals like lithium to change in the coming years and i guess more importantly to me because this is something that as a former member of the united states navy with kids who are nearly of age to uh, perhaps serve in the military themselves do you expect conflict to arise over rare earth minerals similar to conflicts that we've seen over oil well, I'll, I'll take a run of that. Uh, I mean, f- first of all, the technologies work. And, and I want all your listeners to, if they don't re- remember anything else from this discussion, the technology exists to do this. It's not in a test tube. It's not on a drawing board. It's, in, it's actually working in sites all over the globe, all over the world. So wind and solar are now providing limitless clean energy for citizens in over 100 countries in the world. One of the problems, though, has been that they've always had to be subsidized. So if you didn't really look at, if you, if you didn't have a target to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions, you wouldn't be trying to you know, support uh, solar and wind and tidal and things like that. But in the countries that did have those targets, that believed that the public policymakers had to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, lower their carbon footprint, they would subsidize. So what they would do is they'd say, you know, for a wind project, you can bid on it, and you have a feed-in tariff, right? So mm-hmm. that feed-in tariff basically takes something that maybe wasn't that economical or wasn't, uh, and it, it gave a subsidy to it to, for, for, for environmental purposes. Today, there's economic rationale for these projects. These projects make sense on their own. But in order to encourage it, countries are still doing feed-in tariffs. Japan, for instance, uh, post-Fukushima, has had to really have a really good look and say, what are we doing here? If we have to rebuild our electric uh, distribution and, and generation system, what are we going to do? They came out with policies only a few months ago that is radically going to change how that country sees, uh, sees energy production and energy usage. Uh, they have put a $0.52 cent a kilowatt hour feed-in tariff to attract global investment to build out solar farms and wind, wind turbine systems so that about 40% of their energy consumption in 2030 will come from renewables. Now, what makes it all work? We go back to it. It's storage. It's, and, and, and how do you do the storage? Well, you've got to have the resources, if they're, if they're rare earths, uh, uh, for permanent magnets for, for, for the wind turbines, or if you're over in storage, if it's high-purity lithium or vanadium or big flake graphite, you need all those things. So you see that companies over in Japan, as a for instance, are on a global search for long-term stable supplies of high-quality rare earths and critical elements to support those objectives. No such policy has existed in the United States. And even though some of those elements are in the, state, in the United States, there is, you know, there's nothing to stop 
uh, a foreign company supporting a foreign government's energy objectives to secure them for the long term. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but the revolution has started. It's done. It's happening. I've seen it. I went and I saw the Zhang Bay project. It's the biggest solar field you've ever seen, ever. Mm -hmm. And it's a test facility, $2 billion test facility. And I, you know, I don't know the number, but I can certainly tell you that there's nothing even close to that in the Western world. No. Now, Jean, I'd like to bring you in on this. What do you think in terms of conflict? Uh, you know, we've talked about the, the supply issues and how the United States is kind of uh, the Johnny-come-lately when it comes to securing the the critical elements that are needed. I mean, in other words, if we're going to have green jobs and everybody's talking about manufacturing and bringing it back, if we're going to be manufacturing uh these things that will be critical to the energy supply the 21st century, uh, because we're Johnny-come-latelys to getting those supplies secured, do you expect global conflict over the supplies of these materials? It will, a kind of conflict, it will be a war of uh, securizing the supply. Uh, we already see a lot of uh, bid or uh, take over over uh, resource company by the by China company. Mm -hmm. uh, we can just talk about the recent uh, takeover over Taliesin lithium in Australia. Uh, Rockwood uh, lithium from US uh, put a bid on this company, and this bid uh, was recently uh, take over by uh, Tianqi lithium in China. They yeah. they put more money on the table to be sure that these resource will be owned by the China. So this, well, this, this is a kind of conflict that we can see, I think, in the future. Well, I think, I think um, even further than that, we have already seen conflict. Uh, we've seen China cut uh, and a dispute over a couple of rocks over in the South China Sea that uh, are mm -hmm. owned or claimed by uh, Japan and claimed by China. Uh, they escalated the dispute. China cut off two and a half years ago when this whole crisis came into the public's attention. People are saying, what the heck is rare earths? Why, why is it in the news? Well, it's because 57% of all the rare earth usage takes place in high-tech manufacturing in Japan. It is critical to their economy. And uh, in the dispute, China said, we have 97% of, of the world supply. And they showed that they are prepared to use trade uh, mechanisms <clears throat> to achieve political means. They cut Japan off. They mm -hmm. cut it off. And it meant that all of those industries in Japan uh, and all of those researchers and all of those supply chains and all of those end users uh, suddenly said, oh, my goodness, uh, these elements are being used politically. So we've already seen it happen there. We've seen it happen in the Congo. And, you know, one of the things that uh, our company is lucky, we have a, a co-product. It's tantalum. <clears throat> and we talked a little bit about that earlier. Tantalum is used uh, with, with the explosion of miniaturization and smart technology. The world needed more and more tantalum. There hasn't been a new tantalum mine in the world in nearly 30 years. Wow. But there was tantalum, uh, alluvial tantalum, like in, uh, so it means not large scale. It's, got, it's people down in wormholes picking with a, with, a, with a pickaxe. And so there was tantalum in the Congo. And the Rwandan rebels invaded the Congo about 12 years ago. The war went on for about seven or eight years. Nearly five million people died. Over 70,000 women raped and mutilated Ugh. annually. It's one of the biggest genocides since the Second World War. And why? They went after the tantalum ore. And the tantalum ore prices <clears throat> had gone through the roof. 
They invaded Kivu, which is a province of uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. That war goes on today. The rebels are back in because the, 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 the product tantalum becomes scarcer and scarcer. The prices have gone back up. The rebels have captured uh, the capital city. The, the murder, the child soldiering, everything, it's like a descent into hell in that country. Is Why? Because they're going after a rare earth that the West has become addicted to, and that is tantalum. You, we love our technology. Nobody's going to put down their cell phone or say, I'm not buying a laptop. You need all of that or say, I don't want my hip replacement. So, so it's already caused conflict. Will it cause more? I think as, as demand goes up for the products by the consumers and the supply of the material that's available goes down, absolutely. Well, let me ask you this. You know, I mean, what is the, the worldwide uh, supply for this? I mean, how long can the known reserves of these critical elements last? Well, uh, two things. I mean, we're over on the mining side, and we, we're, tra- you know, we, we are transitioning over to the green tech side uh, with our lithium and tantalum deposit. Uh, but there, there are, you know, there's, there are probably new sources out there, but it depends on price and it depends on whatever. But, you know, just to put it in context, in Canada or the United States, it can take up to 12 years from the time that you find the deposit till you get any product into the market because of permitting, um, because of metallurgy, because of drilling, just because of process. So mm-hmm. it isn't a matter of saying, oh, okay, you know what, we just need more of that so we'll just be able to pick it up. It's a very long process. So it's, and it's during that process that conflict will and can and will arise. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess I just get concerned that depending on what the worldwide actual supply of this is, that we would be trading one finite, you know, fuel <laughs> for another if, uh, you know, if, if we switch from one to the other. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but there's much, much more to talk about with Ron and Jean. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today we're talking about critical elements. You will also hear some of those referred to as rare earth minerals or rare earth elements. And this is really a bigger deal than a lot of everyday Americans or North Americans even realize because we're already using these materials profoundly throughout every sector of our um, society. We're using it in medical devices and pharmaceuticals. We're using it in uh, telecommunications, uh, some of our energy supply. It's not just this, uh, you know, renewable energy situation, although that's critical, but we are already using these elements. And I know that even particularly in America, we're talking about constantly jobs, jobs, jobs. How do we bring jobs? Um, how do we get manufacturing rebooted in America? And uh, a lot of folks would love for us to have a green economy where we are the manufacturers of solar panels and wind turbines and battery storage. Yet we're seeing things happen like an American company like A123, which uh, was working on battery technology. Uh, it was supported by millions of dollars in taxpayer uh, donations basically through uh, the Department of Energy supporting the development of this technology, they went bankrupt. And now, as it turns out, a couple weeks ago, the company went to auction and a Chinese company uh, beat out an American company, Johnson & Johnson, um, for or Johnson Controls, forgive me, uh, to, to buy the company. What are your thoughts on this? Jean, I'll start with you. As, uh, again, another proof that the China is uh, there to take control of all the battery and supply uh, market. But uh, I think if uh, it's still a lot of resource here in North America, and it's still a lot of potential to develop this uh, green energy job. Uh, if I look here in Canada, is there a lot of potential for uh, lithium to be mined, uh, quality battery to build a big uh, battery plant here and mm -hmm. develop the the battery market. Mm -hmm. What do you think it would mean, Jean, to the continent of North America in terms of energy security and uh, maybe economic security as well to have a robust domestic supply of these materials? Um, what can you envision if that were the case? I think it will need a big support from the government to uh, to um, uh, put the company uh, confident that they will uh, keep these resources here and give some kind of credit to uh, encourage the, the investment 
and the uh, green energy uh, plan. Mm-hmm. You know, recently I've talked to on Go Green Radio a lot of uh, veterans groups, especially from young veterans who've come back from uh, war in the Middle East. And it occurred to them while they were over there that some of the weapons that were turned against them in Iraq and Afghanistan were financed through our own domestic purchase of oil from foreign countries that feed uh, this funding to weaponize some of our enemies. And, and and they felt like it was really, really critical when they come they came home to talk to people about how we must get off of foreign oil. And, you know, that that, that is something, it's a supply line we can't protect without spending a lot of American lives. Yeah. And it's also uh, a funding mechanism for people who don't like us very much. How similar or dissimilar do you see this issue of supplying critical elements um, to the argument that we should rely on domestic oil or domestic energy versus foreign um, sources of energy? Do you see any correlation between this issue and um, what some of these folks are saying about our reliance on foreign oil? Well, I, I see a, I see a, a real correlation there. I mean, I, I can quote President Obama. I can almost, it's not, I'll, I'll change the quote a little bit. He was talking about uh, electric vehicles and electric vehicle batteries, and this was during the whole uh, concern over the fact that, you know, 100% of, uh, of the uh, you know, things like uh, neodymium uh, and uh, dysprosium, which are absolutely needed, cannot have an electric vehicle without, without, without those elements, that 97 to 100 percent of that's coming from China. And he said, we will not as a nation um, replace our dependence on foreign oil with foreign batteries. He was talking mm-hmm. about cars. I want to talk about mass storage batteries. I want to talk about batteries that support green energy. It's the same thing. So what we've got to be really careful of in America is that we're not just you know, changing horses, but it's the same cart. We have to be very, very careful of that. And I think that uh, in the United States, and, and to, to, uh, to uh, John's uh, uh, inputs there and his answer, is we have, there are still material that's available. What we need is solid policies that say we are going to build in America, in North America, because we've got a free trade deal, we are going to build in North America on a solid platform of renewables. It's possible because storage, we need to acquire those materials that's going to allow us to make that transition, and everybody's going to be better off. And, you know, I, I, I was speaking with somebody the other day down in, um, in New York, <clears throat> and we were, they had called me up for an interview post-Superstorm uh, and said to me, mm-hmm. what are you guys doing to help influence the policymakers that they need to move as, as they repair the power generation system, that the investments don't go back into old technologies, mm-hmm. that they go back into what can we do to have small microgrids in communities uh, right. so that when the big grid goes down, these people, these folks don't lose power? What is it that we can do to build uninterruptible power based on storage and renewables at our hospitals, at our police stations, at our fire stations? All the technologies are there. What it needs is, is, the, is the American public uh, calling their congressmen, particularly down in New England that has suffered so bad over the last uh, couple of months, and say, we want a solution that gets us away from, uh, from, from, the, from the, uh, the foreign oil and starts to build industries 
and rebuild our power grid based on those technologies that are currently available. That can be done. There's battery solutions now that are lithium-ion. There's microgrid technology. Wind turbine works with the proper batteries like lithium-ion. Uh, so those solutions are there. What we need is, is for, for, for policymakers to stop continuously going back to the old solutions that don't work and to embrace it and to support it. And I know that American industry will do the same thing. Well, and you said a mouthful by talking about the role that the American public plays. Right now, this is just not sexy enough on the political scene for people to storm the castle yeah. <laughs> on this issue. And what people need to realize is that we don't have to live this way. What we saw with Superstorm Sandy um, and the massive power outages and the long-term repair that uh, you know people had to endure um, to get their electricity back on, it does not have to be that way. We already know how to create, like you said, microgrids and distributed generation, yeah. and all it takes is for the public policy and public investment in that. And, and it goes way beyond just the typical environmental activists, you know, that some people still see as like the hippie generation or something. It's not like that. I've had military leaders, uh, Marine Corps generals on my show talking about, you know, let's decide right now today we won't spend another American life. Yeah. Um, defending an antiquated system when we already know better and we we can live better and we should demand better and i think that that it's really important that's why i hope everybody in the world you know or everybody you know listens to go green radio so that they feel empowered and and they they have the knowledge base to intelligently communicate this demand to our public policymakers and quite frankly until this is something that voters decide they will base their votes upon, it may not happen, um, unfortunately. But it's got to start for, from those that are hurting the most. And, you know, I was watching television the other night, and, you know, the, the real despair and pain and hurt <clears throat> that many people, folks in New England, have felt um, after the superstorm. The fact is, is that if we just go back and we just rebuild the grid, the old grid that doesn't work, it's going to be, it, it's, it's no less vulnerable. So, you know, there are solutions there. You know, you could, you could have lithium-ion batteries uh, and, and a small battery management system that draws right at your house, that yeah. draws uh, the power uh, from the grid at night, stores it for the power company. So the power yeah. company doesn't, you know, because there's usually differential power rates. So in some states, and uh, you know, power during the daytime is 15 cents a kilowatt. At night, it's 8 cents because there's nobody to use it. Well, That's there's right. solutions out there using technology, using materials that are available, like from, from us today and, and many other companies in the lithium business or vanadium business or nickel business, to use those types of batteries to solve a problem for the big utilities. We'll store your power at night, or we, and we'll store excess power, so that if your grid goes down, I can, you know, I can then manage a minimal amount of power so that I can still heat my home, right? so that I right. can still uh, have my freezer not go down and spoil my food that I've got so that we can still pump gas at gas stations. All of those types of things are there today. So either we'll go back the old route, and that is, you know, just patch up uh, a bad, uh, a bad uh, power generation and transmission system, or we will say, no, we're going to do something different. If you want green jobs for America, that's where it starts. Well, you know, in talking about green jobs, um, I recently had um, a national labor leader for the AFL-CIO, one of the uh, kind of 
consortiums of American labor unions on. And he was talking about, you know, green jobs, that's all great and everybody gets excited about it, but sometimes, uh, they're not necessarily safe. They're not necessarily good paying. Um, and I think, you know, he was, of course, leading to they should be union jobs. And I understand he has a vested interest in that. But, Jean, I'd like to ask you this question. If we were to expand the mining yep. uh, of these materials here in North America, how do these jobs – I mean, I grew up – my dad was a coal miner. So, you know, I know the dangers involved with mining, you know, for resources like that. How does mining for critical elements compare to jobs like that? And are they safe, healthy, and uh, good-paying jobs? Yep. Yeah, for sure. The the salary for a mining job is a very good salary for sure. But uh, if uh, for the safety, uh, mining here in North America is probably one of the safest jobs that you can uh, find. If it, it, It's not comparable with coal mining. Uh, the risk and the uh, the rare rare metals mine is first is majority all uh, open pit mine. So on the the risk you're not underground, so you mm-hmm. know you don't have big risk of uh, blow up or these kind of things. And for the the health and environmentality, uh, we all know that coal is probably very bad for the environment. But mm-hmm. uh, on the uh, rare and uh, rare metals like uh, our deposit is lithium tantalum. It's no uh, acid generation, no lex- metal exuviation, so it's very safe. Mm-hmm. And in terms of um, environmental safety, um, yep. what kinds of things do you have to do when you're mining for these critical elements to ensure that there isn't some spill or some kind of uh, toxic uh, infusion of materials into the atmosphere or into the soil? Um, what kinds of things do you have to do to make a mine for these critical elements environmentally safe? Uh, you have to respect a lot of law, but... Uh as I said before, uh, generally uh, these kind of mines did not reject any uh, uh, special metal that are dangerous for health. Mm-hmm. For sure, some of the uh, rare earth deposit can contain uh, low-grade uranium. This is one of the problems of the rare deposit. But uh, it's not all the deposits that contain that. And in the rare metals, uh, you normally don't have that kind of metals. Mm-hmm. So I don't see any uh, big uh, issue on that. I, I think, re- yeah, I think oh. in North America, just just that uh, the the regulatory requirement in the United States and Canada and the Western world <clears throat> is. Uh, is extreme, and it's extreme for a reason, and it's because the public has demanded that mm-hmm. in extractive industries that the number one uh, issue that's got to be addressed is uh, is environmental protection and mitigation yes. of, of, of disturbance. And interestingly enough, uh, China <laughs> uh, has adopted similar policies. They've shut down probably 25% of their production of uh, rare earths uh, because they were being produced in a way that was extremely damaging to the environment, and the Chinese public around those areas demanded uh, that uh, that those practices be stopped, and the government responded by shutting down production. So I think environmental requirements around extractive industries globally um, the, the, is being driven by the public's demand that the policymakers put those safeguards in place. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, Ron, you've participated on the um, Electronic Industry Citizenship Coalition Committee, and I'd really like for you to share with our listeners uh, some of the findings and the work product of that committee. 
sure. I mean, it, it was a, it's an incredible committee for, for basically it is a committee made up of the, of the world's largest uh, electronics products producers. So it's Apple, it's Intel. Uh, it's uh, Samsung, it's every electronics producer that you can think of participates. And this is the committee uh, that basically looks at um, what it is that they need to address uh, from uh, the perspective of, uh, of uh, environment, social, uh, and, uh, and, and ethical procurement of materials that go into their products. And they really came together because they were getting some of these products were getting slammed by big environment and non-governmental organizations and environmental groups because they weren't paying enough attention to where the materials were coming from and the impact on the environment, on labor, uh, and on human life <clears throat> that was going into their pro- products. It, it all came about because of tantalum, and uh, they responded and they said, "Wow, you know, we knew something was going on. Maybe we should have paid more attention." What they did though is carefully examine the supply chains. And they said, what we've got to do is to put in place um, a process so that we ensure that we are not knowingly uh, securing material for our products that's supporting genocide, that's supporting environmental degradation. And it was really based, it was aimed at the, it was aimed at the, the, the war in the Congo. So what they did is, is they decided, they looked at the supply chain, and all of these materials have got to be processed. So they decided to put a smelter verification process in place and so uh, when it comes to tantalum, every one of these large companies have signed on. Uh, some more have been more aggressive than others to say that we will, we, we will apply extreme due diligence on our supply chains. And if we are, cannot trace the material through the smelter straight back to the mine source, uh, we will not buy it. And indeed, uh, if they're buying from a facility, a, a processor, uh, that if there's one pound of tantalum that can't be traced, most of those companies said we will not buy. So they've had a huge impact, a huge impact on, on lessening the conflict uh, in, uh, in the Congo and in really rooting out a lot of, I call them war criminals, traders that knowingly uh, were abetting in, in genocide and massacre in order to get a few extra pennies for their tantalum supply. So I, I think that it's been a major advance. I think it's really it's big business throwing a light on a very dark uh, a very dark pr- uh, problem, and that is you know you got to be responsible for the materials you put in your goods. You know I know that um, <clears throat> your company is a Canadian company. You're extracting these critical elements. Um, there's nothing saying that that you couldn't sell them to China as well. What kinds of you know negotiations or partnerships are going on to um, to help ensure that you know some of these materials are North American I mean is there uh, you know in their use is there anything going on formally with the governments of Canada the US Mexico to to keep these supplies of critical elements here in North America yes what? we we have some discussion with uh, government to uh, get some support from them to attract uh, some Asian company or U.S. company or company, uh, rock company, to put money here in North America to build a uh, second and third chain of transformation for the battery, for the solar panel, all that kind of uh, green energy. Uh. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, though, formally, it... it, it uh 
it's it's been slow in happening. Um, I think you know when you look at the uh, the three amigos in, in the NAFTA, uh, mm-hmm. Canada, U.S. and Mexico, they they all have their own programs of trying to identify what is critical. But most of them haven't done much to secure to secure it. And one of the things we've done over critical elements is that we have made governments uh, in Canada and the United States aware that you know when it comes to renewable energy. You, you know, one of the one of the key components is a really high purity lithium. You need that, and uh, this project and a couple of others uh, that 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 are uh, close to development are producing some of the highest purity lithium in the world, like 99.95 percent. And that's what you need in order to get into this business in any major way of manufacturing. You need that high purity, and we made them aware that this is a large project and that it's the intention of our company to try to do as much value-add in North America as possible, and that, and that what we need from them uh, would be helpful. Uh, we, we need from them is some attention to the fact that, you know, the, with, with, with uh, free trade, with the WTO, these materials can pretty much go anywhere, uh, but mm-hmm. that we want to work with those governments to ensure that wherever it's commercially viable for us, that we are working towards objectives of keeping the material and adding value in North America, producing batteries in North America, not just lithium. So we're not just going to produce lithium, we're going to produce lithium carbonate. That's a step up the value chain. And we've been, every potential partner that we've talked to in the world, we've said, and we would really think that you should look at producing in North America. You know, the the big resource that we've got, it'll be the largest producer in the world, of uh, lithium carbonate, uh, high grade, is right there. It's, it's, it's in Quebec. It's, right, it's close to the American border. We can service the North American market, and we encourage the potential uh, joint venture partners to look at setting up manufacturing in North America. It's our objective. And do you have any sense of how many jobs could be created in North America? Were we to uh, maintain the supply here in in North America, um, how many jobs could be created as a result of having the supply remain domestic? Just just the first transformation to from the lithium to the carbonate uh, will create over 150 jobs. And if you build a battery plant, uh, we talk about uh, 150 jobs more direct, but it's imply a lot of uh, indirect jobs. Right. So that's the, but that's that's in, that's just in one little operation. But if you yep. go through your value chain on this, uh, it means that uh, electric vehicles start making sense. And so the people, you know, to be producing batteries to support the evolution of of uh, electric vehicles and electric bikes. Electric bikes are the big thing that's going on over in Asia now. Um, that can be done. Uh, building uh, the building and maintenance of charging stations all over all over North America is an enormous investment. Uh, mm-hmm. The building out of storage to production capacity is going to be over a trillion dollar investment in the next ten years globally. Uh, the investment in wind and solar uh, and, and the high-tech jobs that come with it for battery management systems, you're talking about hundreds, millions of jobs fully implemented in a sustainable power generation and storage business. And uh, that's where we need to go. You know, the old manufacturing jobs, you know, some stuff we're not, we're not that competitive anymore. This is something that we can be competitive at. And by having those policies, um, we can move to a green, uh, to, to, to a green sustainable economy in the United States with good, high-paying jobs that people are going to feel good about taking their paycheck at the end of the month. Well, and take it one step further, we become a global exporter of those um, goods as well. Um, 
in the minute that we have left, what would you like to say to U.S. public policymakers and U.S. voters about um, how very, very critical this is and what actions we should be taking in the new year, 2013? What should we do? Give us the, the one-minute wrap. What the policymakers in the U.S. need to do is to take a deep breath and understand there's a huge opportunity for them to reinvigorate the U.S. economy and to get off oil and to do their thing to save the planet, and that is to put place put in place policies, work with industry, get the support from the public, and make a commitment to uh, to move to renewable energy, period. Well, and, and securing our own domestic supply of these critical elements to do that is a big part of the picture. Gentlemen, I'm so pleased that you were able to join us on Go Green Radio today, and I hope that maybe we can have you back as things progress and uh, talk more about some of the public policy issues that um, we need to be putting in place. Folks, I hope that you will take this to heart, and every time you hear another uh, news story about rare earth minerals, you'll perk up and say, hey, that's, that's very vital to our society, to the standard of living we want to leave to our children, and uh, and that maybe you'll get involved in communicating with your lawmakers on these critical, critical issues. Well, this was a lot of fun for me, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on Go Green Radio. We'll be back here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.